so we're coming to you live here from the Fertility Institute of Hawaii. We have a special guest, so I'm Anat Carmon. Dr. John Fratarelli, and we have Dr. Janet Burlingame with us today. She's going to talk to us about some um, issues that you might have in pregnancy, um, either associated with fertility or not, and, and what our patients who are pregnant um, may expect once they once they leave us. And Dr. Burlingame is a, a high-risk OBGYN doctor or maternal fetal medicine doctor, however you want to uh, to to, um, to say it now. Um, and I'll let her introduce herself. Hi, everyone. My name is Janet, Janet Burlingame, and I've been doing maternal fetal medicine for over 20 years, uh, living in Hawaii for 15, and work with Dr. Fratarelli and Carmone on occasion regarding some of their patients. But um, I have a practice dedicated to uh, taking care of women with high risk issues, either with the fetus or the mom. So I'd be happy to enjoy the conversation today and answer any questions I might be able to. Dr. Burlingame, can you start off by just talking about what an MFM is and does, just the role of a maternal fetal medicine specialist? Yeah, they often call us either maternal or fetal doctors, or we're supposed to be both, a little bit of both, hence the maternal fetal medicine. We've also been known as perinatologists in the past not to be confused with neonatologists who care for the uh, preterm and high-risk infants. Uh, but we specialize after our OBGYN residency, uh, instead of going into like an REI fellowship, like Dr. Fratarelli and Carmone, we go into a maternal fetal medicine fellowship, which is a two to three year fellowship dedicated to learning imaging of the fetus, as well as care of the high-risk mom. So let's say moms with diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, thyroid disease, those are some of the more common things. And then taking care of moms who are at risk for pregnancy complications, like the older mom, um, multiple pregnancies, twins, triplets, et cetera. Um, God forbid babies with birth defects, our family history of poor outcome, things like that. So, so we will see patients when, when they come to us and in our initial evaluation of them, we will assess what their OB history has been um, and what their medical history has been. What are the, some of the things that we should be looking for uh, in order to send them to you? Like, so what, what um, medical issues um, or prior pregnancy complications would, would there be that we would then need to send them to you for an evaluation prior to getting pregnant with us? Some of the, some of the more common things that are nice to uh, get a start on before pregnancy or probably at number one on the list is diabetes. If you have diabetes, you can really improve your outcome with good control prior to conception, getting your hemoglobin A1C down. Ideally, we used to say below 6.5, but now we'd even like it down to 5.7 or lower if possible. Um, and making sure you're on the right medications that are safe for conception and safe for the fetus. So that would go along also with some of the more common problems like uh, hypertension, and hyperthyroidism, hypothyroidism, certainly moms with heart disease or congenital heart disease. Those are moms that should have a discussion to see whether it's even a good idea for them to become pregnant. Um, women with chronic kidney disease, any chronic illness, lupus, those are just a few. And then in regards to pregnancy history, any woman who's had a prior preterm birth is at risk for another prior preterm birth. So that's certainly something to think about. And then, of course, the family history of genetic illness um, or genetic diseases that might recur in future pregnancies certainly deserve a conversation with a geneticist or a genetic counselor or MFM. And just, just to follow up on that just a second, 
you know, I always tell my patients that, you know, it's kind of like insurance. You know, if, if, you've, if, you've had it, if, if you've had an accident and your insurance goes up because you're at risk, right? So any kind of complication you've had with pregnancy before tends to put you at a higher risk for having that same complication later on. That's correct? That's correct, yes. Yeah. And, and then for, for the diabetes issue, what if patients can't get their blood sugar down or their hemoglobin A1C down below, below 6? Well, it's always worth trying. I would put it that way. Um, and some women can't. Sometimes it has to be multiple medications. Honestly, a lot of time it means going on insulin when you hadn't been controlled on insulin before. And we do have a little stricter threshold um, in pregnancy. Our recommendations for uh, the numbers, the glucose values are a little bit lower than we would expect in non-pregnancy. So it's certainly, you're right, it certainly can be a challenge. And I think it's then just understanding if you can't get below certain numbers, then here are the risks. And primarily, we start to see risks of increased risk of birth defects if your hemoglobin A1C starts to get much above seven. Um, but there's also other risks for diabetes and pregnancy, like early birth, uh, hypoglycemia in the newborn, um, preeclampsia, all those things. But it's always worth trying to get it there if you can. Not like I'm not letting them not talk. I'm sorry. Um, is it all birth defects, or just are there are there specific birth defects associated with, with diabetes? It's it's a lot of birth defects. The most common ones being cardiac and uh, nervous system, central nervous system. So brain, spine, and heart are the most common ones associated with diabetes. Anyway, I just wanted to ask a few more questions because diabetes and hypertension are so common, and those are probably the two most common. Uh, conditions which we do refer, you know, to, to a preconception visit for. Um, what are the medications uh, which um, you ask patients to continue on? So, for example, for both diabetes and hypertension, oftentimes patients are switching their medications uh, to be safer in pregnancy. What are what are some of the the most common unsafe versus safer choices in those two conditions? Well, for hypertension, one of the ones we like to see people try and transition off of are the ACE inhibitors and the ARB inhibitors. So the angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors and the ARBs. Um, and the more common safer ones for high blood pressure, for example, we use a lot of beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. So libetalol to some degree, um, toprol, especially if you have arrhythmia issues. Um, nifedipine is another common one. Norvas is another common one. Uh, and then for diabetes, the tried and true really is insulin. And then probably the second most common that's safe is metformin. Um, but the one recommended by the American College of OBGYN as the first line agent now is insulin, with second choice probably being metformin. Some uh, gliburide is okay as kind of a third choice, but you want to get off some of the newer medications like um, uh, I'm blanking on the names right now, but Tru uh, Trulia is that it, and yeah. um, mm -hmm. um, some of the newer and uh, the newer like injections, weekly injection medications. Uh, right. They have been as well studied. And I didn't hear you say um, anything about Optimet or methyl dopa, which is kind of the the most uh, you know that that's the older. <laughs> yeah, I mean it. It's um, it's a safe drug, but yeah. I don't know that it's as effective as some of the others. Right. So if you have mild hypertension. I think that it's certainly okay to stay on it, but often we find that it's not as effective as some of the, like things like labetalol or nifedipine or norvask or things like that. Right, and along those lines, um, maybe you could talk a 
little bit about the use of low-dose aspirin. Um, I know that it's used commonly for um, patients to prevent preeclampsia. Who are the patients that you're putting them on? You know, when do you start that? Tell me about that. The United States um, Preventative Task Force has a really nice chart that you can access on the internet, but it basically it gives you high and low risk and moderate risk reasons to go on it. In general, women who are at high risk for preeclampsia, we think that having a baby aspirin and at night is better than in the morning. There's something about the circadian rhythm um, to decrease the uh, rate of preeclampsia by almost a third. But women, um, older women, uh, women who had preeclampsia, particularly severe preeclampsia in the past, are some of the most common things. Um, advanced maternal age, even uh, obesity is one of the more minor factors, but if you add the more up together, and certainly any um, uh, rheumatological disorder like lupus or antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, Sjogren's syndrome, um, uh, rheumatological diseases are, would also be one of the reasons to go on it. But so uh, there are a fair amount of women who are good candidates, but again, my practice is probably biased. So I would say about 30% or so of my patients are on it for some reason or the other. Multiple pregnancies would be another reason. <laughs> so I, have, I have a question for you. So the, the, as, as REIs, you know, we're, we're very concerned about you know, the, the thyroid level, the TSH level. And there's some data showing that you know, thyroid levels that are in the high normal range can be associated, more associated with developmental abnormalities as opposed to the low normal range. And so we always work very hard to try to keep our thyroid, uh, patients' thyroid levels in the normal range. Um, What's the maternal fetal medicine view of that? Well, the the data is um, I won't Not say conflicting, but a little cloudy. Right. To be fair to say, but most people, and I think it's the American Thyroid Association as well, is saying that um, in the first trimester of pregnancy, there's something called the TSH that you measure, and ideally, your goal is to keep that less than two point five, and later in pregnancy, less than three, and that's particularly if you have. Hashimoto's and something about having Hashimoto's is an autoimmune disease of the thyroid. And if you have antibodies similar to Hashimoto's, there's something about that. And people have theories, but no one's ever proven anything that somehow that may worsen the outcome, more preterm birth, more miscarriage. So we have, we have a lower threshold for treating people with quote unquote subclinical hypothyroidism if they have Hashimoto's uh, antibodies versus say just without but I usually go by 2.5 and 3.0 to be my guidelines but I'll admit that the data is a little fuzzy what I always found confusing about that is that ACOG actually doesn't recommend universal TSH screening in pregnancy either um, so it's it's we're screening our patients because they have infertility um, but uh, and, you know, it may, there may be some impact on outcomes and things like that for us. But um, women who are achieving pregnancies, low-risk women, um, don't necessarily even have a TSH. Uh, yeah, and that's true. And the recommendation, at least now, because the large-scale studies really haven't shown that there's any improvement in outcome in a low-risk population. So, but kind of by definition, you have a higher risk population because they are, you are dealing with infertility. Right. Having said that, in 10 years from now, we may feel differently. 
Um, but right now, I think that when they just looked at the, the large scale outcome data that they didn't show screening low risk women, because then you also, um, you know, theoretically there's harm in over treating as well. Sure. So, so I think it's a, a risk, risk benefit analysis, but um, there's a lot of debate on it. I will agree with that. Yeah, I think I think ACOG's statement is, is they recommend um, aggressive case finding. So they, they recommend, you know, without screening for TSH. So I don't, I don't know what that really means. So I just checked the TSH. <laughs> That's my certainly if someone's symptomatic or they have something on exam, a goiter or something in their right. head. Um, or they have symptoms of hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism, I think it's worth checking. In diabetics, I think it's worth checking. People with autoimmune disease, other autoimmune disease, I think it's worth checking. Right. Thank you. So, you know, we, we do in our infer infertile population have a lot of older patients uh, because they're delaying childbirth um, or coming in for their, you know, for another child later in life. Um, and so for, for our patients who are in that older than 35 or older than 40 category, what are some of the more common pregnancy complications that they may actually encounter as opposed to their, their younger counterparts? That's a great question. Um, again, some of the more common things would be preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, um, high blood pressure, which is related to preeclampsia. And there's even some data, and I know a lot of people talk about it, and there's a lot of talk regarding the increased rate of stillbirth um, in older populations and what to do about that. Um, no one really, I know the uh, UK has some recommendations. The United States doesn't outright have recommendations on what to do, but um, I've been talking a lot recently with some of my colleagues on how to handle and what is advanced maternal age? Typically that's defined as 35 but in, and older, 35 years and older. But in some studies, 40 years and older or even 45 years and older. So again, it depends on the cutoff that you're using. But I think that most people, and I like some of the data out of the UK that um, recommends or substantiates a slightly higher risk of stillbirth once you hit the age of 40, once you get beyond 39 weeks in pregnancy. Um, and so there's some discussion about offering induction between 39 and 40 weeks in women that are 40 and older, or certainly having that discussion with uh, even the 35 and older group, although I think the data is a little better for 40 and older. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and then one of the things we don't want to forget about is talking about um, a little bit about testing options. So um, we have a lot of women who undergo uh, PGTA or pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy, um, which, uh, which consists of testing embryos for essentially chromosomal abnormalities. Um, we can pick up um, chromosomal abnormalities as well as some mosaic abnormalities at this point. And I think the technology has gotten, has gotten pretty good. There's very high sensitivity and specificity um, with PGTA. Um, as an MFM, when you see these patients, um, are you recommending the same type of testing in pregnancy for abnormalities? Um, are you changing your recommendations based on that? What are you doing with that? The recommendation is to still offer people testing as you would based on age um, or family history. 
But a lot of people, there was a kind of interesting study not too long ago that was published saying that a lot of people who do uh, pre-implantation genetic screening opt out of the traditional amniocentesis and CVS because they feel that sense of reassurance. And although it does decrease your risk of having a chromosomal abnormality or birth defect during the pregnancy, it certainly doesn't eliminate it because um, it's not a perfect science. You're only biopsying a select part of the embryo, not the entire embryo. Um, so the question is to do it or not. I will say in my own experience, most people do blood screening work. Not many have gone to amnio, which is a, if you think of genetic testing, I think that the difference between a screening test and a diagnostic test. And a screening test is something that's typically done by blood work or ultrasound that will tell you whether that pregnancy is a high risk or low risk for a birth defect. But a diagnostic test actually takes a sample from the pregnancy and looks at the actual chromosomes and DNA within the pregnancy. So it's much more precise. But the downside that is not attractive to people is that there's a small risk of miscarriage associated with any invasive procedure, usually on the range of one to 200 to one in 400. So, um, Having said that, most people I find typically opt to do the blood testing, which is not perfect, but helps decrease the risk, like you had mentioned, of mosaicism. Um, if you see that uh, on, on the blood work, then something called NIPT, that can certainly decrease the chance that the embryo has it, but doesn't eliminate it. So that's a very long way of saying um, there's no right answer. You have to choose what's best for you and your family. But um, PGS does certainly decrease it, but does not eliminate the fact that you wouldn't have like a mosaic uh, 21 or, uh, sorry, using medical, a lot of medical terms, but um, uh, you wouldn't have an abnormality in the in the pregnancy. Right. But maybe you can go through um, various testing options, you know, for whether or not patients ha have done uh, PGTA or not. You know, you mentioned free fetal DNA. Amnio, CBS, what, what are those? So when I cut things, when I break things down, I like to think of things again as screening or as diagnostic. And a screening test includes uh, things called uh, sequential screening or integrated screening, which is a combination of mom's blood uh, spread out over two different blood draws and an ultrasound that looks at the back of the embryo's neck. And it uses those data points to give you a risk uh, Down syndrome, another disease called trisomy 18, and another disease called spina bifida. And it picks up about 94% of Down syndrome, so it's pretty good. And it's going to come back saying whether you're high risk or low risk. It's not going to say yes or no. So it's going to give you an answer saying that the pregnancy might be affected 1 in 10,000 or to as high as 1 in 10. And that's quite good, especially in the lower risk population. It's been tested and trialed and is quite good. Then there's another screening test that has in the past typically been targeted to the higher risk groups, but more and more is getting used now in all age, all age ranges and all age groups. It's something called non-invasive prenatal screening or cell-free DNA. And it's again, blood work on the mom. And it uh, looks at, it's really an amazing technology. It looks at DNA or molecules in your bloodstream that are released by the early placenta so um, its benefit is it picks up about 98% of Down syndrome, but not 100%. And it gets reported as either um, positive or negative. 
And if it's positive, you, you kind of use this calculation and uh, something called a positive predictive value um, based on age and what the test said. And it ends up being anywhere from about 60 to 90% that the baby would actually have it, but not 100%. The real power, I think, is if it comes back negative, it means that there's less than one in 10,000 chance that the baby has Down syndrome, another disease called trisomy 18, and another disease called trisomy 13. So anyway, it's a very powerful test as long as you understand its limitations. And if it does come back positive, we recommend then going on and doing a diagnostic test because we want to know whether that DNA that's circulating in the moms that's showing a positive is released from the placenta and the embryo or just the placenta or maybe an early twin loss, which other things that can make it what we call a false positive report. So then we go on to diagnostic. And in the diagnostic realm, there are two um, tools that we can use. One is something called a chorionic villus sampling, which is usually done around 12, 13 weeks and takes a little biopsy from the placenta. Now, again, that won't necessarily, if it comes up mosaic or comes up um, with mosaic, meaning a mixed pattern of chromosomes, um, <laughs> you sometimes have to go on again and do the amnio because again, you don't know if it's, sometimes the placenta can just have abnormal and sometimes it's the placenta and the baby. Most of the time they're concordant and they're the same, but rarely there's this thing where you can just get problems with the placenta. Um, or wait till 16 weeks and do something called an amnio, which is where we put a needle in to take fluid out from around the baby, amniotic fluid, and there's cells from the baby inside there and the laboratory can grow them and stain them and actually count the number of chromosomes as well as doing things called microarray, which uses, um, if you will, it's like having a high powered microscope and looking down to the DNA at a much smaller level. Or even if, for example, the family does have a history, let's say of cystic fibrosis or spinal muscular atrophy, Tay-Sachs, Fragile X, those are some of the more common ones, thalassemias, we can actually do single gene identifications, like similar to what you can do with some of the PGS and PGT, the pre-implantation testing. And we can actually look for single gene defects. But again, you have to know, in that case, you have to know what you're looking for. You can't test every single gene throughout the chromosomes. I think it's, you know, it's important to, to also point out that like for, for PGT, what we're doing is we're testing the trophectoderm cells, which are going to become the placenta. So it's kind of like a CVS, but very early on. Um, whereas the amniocentesis, you're actually getting some, you're actually getting fetal cells as well. So, you know, if, if you do a CVS, for instance, and it's a questionable call, the amniocentesis then can, can confirm that, correct? Correct. And, you know, it, there's rare occasions where it won't pick up mosaics, but for the most part, amnio is um, a very useful tool because it, as you said, just tests cells that are coming mostly from the fetus um, the majority of the time. There are rare cases where there's a contamination, but so, yeah, it's a useful tool. But as with anything, uh, with most things, there's a risk of miscarriage for amnio of one in 400 and a risk with CBS of miscarriage of one in 200. So those are always things to keep in mind when making those choices, but they're very powerful tools. So, so just for the sake of argument, you know, you know, I, I'm, I'm coming to you as a patient. I've had PGT. I have 
what I, you know, I'm pretty certain is a chromosomally normal embryo, why am I going to want to do any other testing? That's a great question um, because it could theoretically have missed it. Um, it if the embryo was a mosaic, it didn't test every cell in the embryo. So you could be missing a low level mosaicism. When again, mosaicism is a mixture where an embryo or a fetus have some cells that are normal and some cells that don't have normal chromosomes. Um, and there can also be changes that happen early in the embryo that you haven't picked up. <coughs> I read a study somewhere that said it can pick up about 97%. Is that your understanding too of the common cool. aneuploidies? The PGT? For PGT? For PGT. Yeah. So in general, it's about 98 or so, 97, 98% in, in, in that range. So there's always that 1% to 2% that you, you haven't picked up um, right. that you could be missing. And I guess you know what, what, they, what they also found was that the incidence of miscarriage is so high with any aneuploidy that the risk of having, of having an ongoing pregnancy at that term that would be abnormal is, is you know, really low. Um, I guess my other my other question with that would be, you're doing testing that isn't really also that that's not necessarily looking at chromosomes and genetics as well. So can you kind of talk about that and why some of these tests are actually needed? Well, the other if you think of testing, I guess the other common thing that I haven't really talked a lot about is ultrasound and screening and testing, and that's um, really important. Even if you're someone who doesn't want to do genetic testing for whatever reason, personal or otherwise. Um, the ultrasound can look at birth defects that uh, can identify birth defects that have nothing to do with chromosomes or that we can't identify chromosomes. But not only that, like in twins, they can tell you early on whether they're identical twins or not. And some of the problems that go with identical twins, like twin twin transfusion syndrome, you also have a higher rate with ART of, of placental problems, including something called a vasoprevia. So that's one of the reasons why in all patients that come to our program who've had ART, um, we do uh, transvaginal imaging of the cervix and the blood vessels, to look for any blood vessels in front of the cervix, which is the definition of a vasoprevia. Um, we all look for the placenta covering um, and growth issues certainly. Um, but in general, we do, we recommend an ultrasound in the first trimester at around 12 weeks. And then depending on whether you have twins or not, if you just have a singleton, the next ultrasound probably at around 18 to 20 weeks to look at the anatomy. And then if you're higher risk, a little bit what we talked about before for heart defects, we recommend an ultrasound at around 22 to 24 weeks to look at the baby's heart. So I have a question, um, a little bit off topic, but the ultrasound reminded me. Uh, we do have a lot of patients uh, who have fibroids. Some of those fibroids we remove, some we don't, depending on, um, of course, the patient's desires, but also the impact on the cavity, how distorted the cavity is, how large the fibroids are, whether the patient is symptomatic. And some of those fibroids grow during pregnancy. That's something that we kind of warn them about. Can you talk a little bit about fibroids and pregnancy, some of the complications that you see with that and how you manage fibroids during pregnancy? Well, to start, I think most fibroids are pretty well um, tolerated during pregnancy. Uh, it, the very large ones or the ones that are in the distorting the lining of the cavity are the ones we worry about more and the ones with rapid growth. Um, 
So the most common problem I probably see is pain or discomfort, maternal discomfort from the rapid growth. And that is sometimes hard to treat. In certain cases, we can go as far as to use something that's a lot like Motrin. But of course, you, everyone tells you don't take Motrin or don't take ibuprofen when you're pregnant. So if you do it, make sure you do it under the guidance of a physician so they can monitor everything and monitor the baby. Um, and then in rare cases, it can increase the risk of preterm birth as well as malposition. Like it can prevent the baby from being head down and the baby can um, be in a breech position when it comes time for birth. So this would probably be the three, pain, preterm birth, and um, breech. Perfect. So one of the questions at least that I have is, um, so sometimes we'll have, well, we have a lot of patients who use donor eggs, for instance, um, and, and they we have a patient who might be 44 who will use donor eggs. So she's coming to you with donor eggs, using donor a donor eggs that are from a 22-year-old. She's 44. Um, how does that change your view of her and her complications with pregnancy and maybe her testing that she might need? Well, as, as far as genetic testing goes, um, you have to, I think of the genetic risks being reduced because the donor is younger. And so the risk of having too many or too few chromosomes, something called aneuploidy, is reduced. You may make your assessment typically based on the age of the egg donor. Um, having said that, though, the risks, uh, maternal risks of the pregnancy are still there regardless of the age of the donor. So there's kind of a, an, a great article a couple of years ago out of Israel that looked at, extreme, they called it extreme advanced maternal age, greater than 45 and 50. And a lot of people come to me with the belief, well, again, if I have an egg donor that's young, then I'm not gonna have the risks of preeclampsia, preterm birth, small growth, gestational diabetes, um, increased bleeding, increased admission to the NICU, which are things we see in that age range of greater than 45. But if you actually look at the data, the most people studied in that group, in that cohort, were egg donors. So it leads you to believe that it's really not the age of the donor, but the, um, the mom that's carrying the pregnancy. So certainly there's still high risk. It doesn't diminish the medical associated risks in pregnancy. Thank you. Sure. Um, Yeah, that's um, that's all the questions I had. I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to uh, bring up or that you think is important for us to to discuss. But no, I the only thing I would like to say, say is talking about carrier screenings a little bit, and I know you guys do a lot of that. You do it
Yeah, and we and we do offer it to all of our couples or all of our patients, uh, and it, they have they have obviously the ability to decline it if they want, and they sign saying they decline it. But it is it is offered to everyone uh, for that for that specific reason. Um, yeah, I do have a patient who um, is uh, she's asking a quite well. I don't know if she's a patient. We have a viewer who is a question here. Um, so she is on for blood pressure and she has PCOS. Um, are there physical symptoms of hypertension for the mother during pregnancy and for the baby after birth? Are there birth defects due to hypertension? Um, does a mother with hypertension require bed rest prior to birth for pregnant mothers? Um, and if yes, around how long does a woman with hypertension uh, need to be out of work? for her birth and for her hypertension. Sorry, that's a lot of questions. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, mifetiquine is a safe drug in pregnancy. So I would stay on that if it's controlling your blood pressure. And the goal in pregnancy anyway, is to keep your blood pressure less than 160 over 110, but probably even lower if you've had longstanding high blood pressure and might have problems with your kidneys or heart or other parts of your body. You might want it to keep it even lower than that. So anyway, safe drug and I would stay on it. And it does increase your risk when you have high blood pressure entering pregnancy, it does increase your risk of preeclampsia. So I would also be on, uh, you would be one of the people I would recommend being on baby aspirin from 12 weeks on at night. But you don't necessarily have to be on bed rest. It really depends on how your pressure is doing. And honestly, bed rest is not um, a cure-all. It has its own risks associated with it, like higher sugars, and increased risk of blood clots. So I would rather keep your blood pressure controlled on the right amount of medication than have you be in bed for that. And if you did develop preeclampsia, then it depends on where you were in your pregnancy. You might need to be hospitalized and then you would be on modified bed rest. If you have severe preeclampsia, we typically recommend delivering at or by 34 weeks. But if you have the milder form of preeclampsia and your doctor could certainly review that with you, um, you, we would recommend delivery at 37 weeks. And then most recovery, once you give birth, most women are well and recovered by six weeks. Um, it's the rare patient that needs more than six weeks off of work. Um, so it, it, as far as long-term disability. And then as far as the baby goes and its risk of high blood pressure, we know that there are higher risks because it tends to run in families. And we also know that there's something about the in utero environment for example, women, one of the risks for gestational diabetes and having really high sugars when you're pregnant is that it can somehow, we think, modify something called the Barker hypothesis, but basically modify the baby's risk um, metabolism and increase long term. But the thought is if you try to control the sugar, and the same hasn't been shown as much for high blood pressure, but control the sugar in pregnancy that um, you can reduce those risks long-term for the, for the adult child. And, and are there any um, uh, risks associated with malformations from high blood pressure? Uh, typically not. Typically with high blood pressure, there, there's not an increased risk of birth defects. It's more an increased risk of preterm birth and abruption, placental abruption, which is where the, the placenta tears earlier and you can have bleeding, which can lead in very severe forms to stillbirth, but in more milder forms lead to preterm labor or just smaller babies. Right, and, and, and patients with any kind of medical issue like that, high blood pressure, 
um, or diabetes are going to be followed more closely by their OBGYN and, and in particular and a lot of times in, cons in consultation with someone like yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a home blood pressure cuff is a must. I highly recommend if you have high blood pressure or you're an older mom um, or you develop diabetes, any of those, I would definitely recommend getting a home blood pressure cuff. Yeah. Well, thank you so thank much. You so I guess much. before we say thank you, I mean, is there anything else that you want to add? No, I think I, it was great talking. I can't think of anything yeah. right now off the top of my head. But I, I appreciate all your guys, the, the very thorough workups that all your patients get are amazing. So I appreciate that. Thank you. I, well, thank this has been super informative, at least for me. So um, yeah, I'll just be, I'll be sending even more people to MFM. So. Well, we'd love to see them. We'd be yeah. happy. It's a, it's a pleasure when we get to meet people before they, before they get pregnant to try and optimize them. Anyway. Oh, yeah, so I, sorry, I have some, some people on the sides here telling me what to do. <laughs> so, our producers. Uh, our producers have requested perhaps you can um, just let us all know where, where you're currently working, your center right now. and Oh, yeah, I work for what uh, Women's Specialty Care, which is located in Kailua on the Windward side. We're in the Polly Palms building, building A. Um, our number is 808-762-1996. And I, we see inpatients at El Castle Medical Center, Queens Medical Center, and Capiolani Medical Center. Uh, and we also do scans um, twice a week at Queens Medical Center as outpatients, and the rest of the time we're at our Kailua practice. Perfect. Okay, wonderful. Thank well, thanks so much for being here with us, and um, we look forward to, yeah, continue to work with you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. You guys have a great thank day. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.